the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3, following up on that uh, discussion with Jeff Taylor. Any society of success, any level of civilization is fragile, and we probably err too much in thinking otherwise. But for illustration, just think about once great cities here, from San Francisco to Los Angeles, two cities, interestingly, named after saint and angels, to Detroit, Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, they are not beautiful or great anymore. They are washed out symbols of human and social self-destruction, self-destruction. No army blew through them and blew them up. The people living there in those cities did. Some from kinetic activity, some from indolence and insouciance as it was taking place. And the destruction became not just self-destruction, but a centrifugal force that moved outward like an ink stain, taking other people and communities along the way beyond the confines of the inner city. You've heard me on this before, but between what Jeff Taylor and I were talking about last hour and what our county attorney, Rachel Mitchell, and I will be talking about in just a bit, it's worth remembering the teaching of the very first political scientist, Aristotle who puts forth a once understood and now nearly forgotten and perhaps controversial, puts forward this thought in his first chapter of his book on politics. He writes, quote, Since man alone has any sense of good and evil, of just and unjust and the like, the association of living beings who have this sense makes a family and a state. Those are the two most important institutions we build, family and state or polis. And then he goes on, the state is by nature clearly prior to the family and to the individual, since the whole is of necessity prior to the part. For example, if the whole body be destroyed, there will be no foot or hand, except in an equivocal sense, as we might speak of a stone hand. For when destroyed, the hand will be no better than that. One recoils just a little at the thought that the state is prior to the individual or family, Though Madison, James Madison, makes a similar point in the Federalist Papers. But the point Aristotle is making is that if you want to create something good, it has to be housed in an environment that will allow it to grow and thrive and prosper. So I, James Madison has, has a take on this in the 51st Federalist Paper where he writes, quote, In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. Hold those thoughts for a moment. Many of you who may listen to Dennis Prager's show know that he's a huge fan of 12-step programs. I am too. And people who have been involved in 12-step programs may know a phrase that comes out of one of them known as Al-Anon, and it's that I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. And we think of that in individual relationships, broken ones usually or breaking ones, especially when a mind-altering or behavior-altering or addictive substance is involved. It's not true in social policy. We never think that way and shouldn't. Our government and charitable organizations are dedicated to reams of effort at trying to solve problems 
or control them that none of the people directly caused. Keep that in mind and keep the word cause in mind also. Many of you know I've lately been consumed with trying to get at solving solving the burgeoning homeless crisis here in Phoenix. And it's not really a homeless crisis. That's what too many call it. If you go down to what is called the zone or tent city downtown Phoenix, you almost wonder what words can describe what you see. But a city of tents is not quite it. It's not camping, as most understand the word. I worry about us dressing up or sanitizing these things. These are not tents for recreation. These are cobbled together cloth and metal shanties put together with no consideration other than something to temporarily shield the sun or the rain. For those of you that have seen pictures of or been to the border, this is 10 times worse. And it's within our city, within our country. And it's mostly American citizens. Filth, garbage, malnutrition, people aimlessly walking through the streets, some muttering, some yelling at nobody, some yelling at others, some silent. Michael Schellenberger up in California puts it this way. He says, these are not encampments. These are open drug scenes and mental health depots. By depots, I mean deposits. We have the Sudan or Kabul, five or so miles from where I'm broadcasting. American citizens living in the rule of the jungle, which is to say no more than the rule of force and insanity, literal insanity. It is solvable, and I'm going to be working on this and talk some more about it over the next months. But it's also inexcusable. Drugs, alcohol, mental illness, that's the toxic combination that dominates these areas. And crime is the result, violent and abusive crime. So let's talk a little about cause, because I do think we can control, if not solve this. Because there's a vicious cycle to it all, starting with the phrase homeless problem. As I was saying, the people we are talking about do not want homes. They are not people down on their luck who just lost a job or lost a job a month or two ago and could no longer pay rent or mortgage. And there's just yet one more phrase we sanitize. For example, we used to call the problem of drugs illegal drug use. Then we called it illegal substance abuse. Then we simply called it substance abuse, and now we just call it substance use, as if it's normal. We speak of drug overdoses. Why do we speak of an overdose? It shouldn't be an overdose, at least not in the way we think about it. You take fentanyl, it's a dose. The drug did what it was designed to do. It poisoned a brain or body. It's a dose. At this point, you almost want to come back to Confucius. When words lose their meaning, people lose their liberty. Have you met someone in the grips of mental illness or illegal drug use and addiction? There is nobody less free or more imprisoned. And because of the incapacity or distorted capacity, many think they are actually more free than us when they are in the grip of drug use, which is part of the vicious cycle of dependency as well. We are talking about broken souls here, which are existing in an environment of broken windows. Now, many of you are familiar with the broken windows theory of law enforcement. I reread the authors of that theory, their original work on it, this morning. It was originally published in 1982. The authors were George Kelling, a professor at Rutgers, and James Wilson, James Q. Wilson, or Jim Wilson, a professor at Harvard. And they've both passed away. And I thought it might be worthwhile to excerpt some of that original work, because this is yet one more thing we are going to need a great relearning on if we are going to solve it. Here is what they wrote. Many citizens 
are, of course, primarily frightened by crime, especially crime involving a sudden violent attack by a stranger. This risk is very real in many large cities, but we tend to overlook another source of fear. The fear of being bothered by disorderly people, not violent people necessarily, nor necessarily criminals, but disreputable or obstreperous or unpredictable people, panhandlers, drunks, addicts, routed teenagers, prostitutes, loiterers, the mentally disturbed. At the community level, disorder and crime are usually inextricably linked in a kind of developmental sequence. Social, psycholo- social psychologists and police officers tend to agree that if a window in a building is broken and is left unrepaired, all the rest of the windows will soon be as well. This is as true in nice neighborhoods as it is in run-down ones. Window breaking does not necessarily occur on a large scale because some areas are inhabited by determined window breakers, whereas others are populated by window lovers. Rather, one unrepaired broken window is a signal that no one cares, and so breaking more windows costs Nothing. And to many, it's just fun. Untended property then becomes fair fair game for people out for fun or plunder. And even for people who ordinarily would not dream of doing such things and who probably consider themselves law abiding. Because of the nature of community life, vandalism begins much more quickly than it does in places like, say, Paradise Valley or Palo Alto, where people have come to believe that private possessions are cared for and that mischievous behavior is costly. But vandalism can occur anywhere once communal barriers, the sense of mutual regard and obligation of, of civility, are lowered by actions that seem to signal that no one here cares. We suggest that untended behavior also leads to the breakdown of community controls. A stable neighborhood of families who care for their homes, mind each other's children, and confidently frown on unwanted intruders can change in a few years or even a few months to an inhospitable and frightening jungle. A piece of property is abandoned, weeds grow up, a window is smashed, adults stop scolding rowdy children, the children emboldened become more rowdy, families move out, unattached adults move in, teenagers gather in front of the corner store, the merchant asks them to move, they refuse, fights occur, litter accumulates, people start drinking in front of the grocery store. In time, an inebriate, uh, an, ine- an inebriate slumps to the sidewalk, isn't allowed to sleep it off, and pedestrians routinely become approached by panhandlers. At this point, it is not inevitable that serious crime will flourish or violent attacks on strangers will occur. But many residents will think that crime, especially violent crime, is on the rise, and they will modify their behavior accordingly. They will use the streets less often, and when on the streets, will stay apart from their fellows, moving with averted eyes, silent lips, and hurried steps. Don't get involved. For some residents, this growing atomization will matter little, because the neighborhood is not their home, but the place where they live. Their interests are elsewhere. They are cosmopolitans, but it will matter greatly to other people whose lives derive meaning and satisfaction from local attachments rather than worldly involvement. For them, the neighborhood will simply cease to exist except for a few reliable friends whom they arrange to meet. Such an area is now vulnerable to criminal invasion. Though it is not inevitable, it is more likely that here rather than in places where people are confident they can regulate public behavior by informal controls, Drugs will change hands, prostitutes will solicit, and cars will be stripped. That the drunks will be robbed by boys who do it as a lark, and the prostitutes' customers will be robbed by men who do it purposefully and perhaps violently, and muggings soon begin 
to occur more frequently. The proliferation of graffiti, even when not obscene, confronts public transportation and public transportation riders with the inescapable knowledge that the environment he must endure for an hour or more a day is uncontrolled and uncontrollable, and that anyone can invade it to do whatever damage and mischief the mind suggests. That link is similar to the process whereby one broken window becomes many. The citizen who fears the ill-smelling drunk, the rowdy teenager, the importuning beggar, is not merely expressing his distaste for unseemly behavior. He is also giving voice to a bit of folk wisdom that happens to be a correct generalization, namely that serious street crime flourishes in areas which disorderly behavior goes unchecked. The unchecked panhandler is, in effect, the first broken window. Muggers and robbers, whether opportunistic or professional, believe they reduce their chances of being caught or even identified if they operate on streets where potential victims are already intimidated by prevailing conditions. If the neighborhood cannot keep a bothersome panhandler from annoying passers-by, the thief may reason it is even, it is even less likely to call the police to identify a potential mugger or to interfere if the mugging actually takes place. And this is where I'd like to pause for a moment. The broken windows theory is correct, but the first broken window is the broken soul. And this, it seems to me, is our first task to address, and it must be via law enforcement and education. Take a quick break, and I'll come back to some concluding thoughts on this. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions are of which are brought to you by my friends at Y-Refi. If you are looking for a unique investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check them out. They are offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really good people who are doing well by helping others, and you can be too. If you want to check them out, Go to investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. It's an interesting thing if I can just tack on to what I was saying in my monologue the previous segment as to where we are in society today. It was all the rage to defund the police a couple of years ago, and there's an effort right now to try and even memory hole that effort by so many on the left and the Democrats. And yet the policies and the personnel we need to have a city and a civilization that is based on law enforcement and decency and law-abiding people, they've been attenuated through a lot of different things. We're going to have Rachel Mitchell on to talk about Sometimes it's the lawmakers, but sometimes it's also the law and the judges. Too often we dismiss the Thunderdome we have tolerated and the enforcement of law by calling what is taking place quality of life crimes. We should not be doing that. We are talking vagrancy. We are talking arson. We are talking battery. We are talking illegal drug dealing and use. We are talking sex abuse and rape. Why do we not want to enforce this and dismiss it merely as a quality of life series of crimes? Michael Schellenberger, talking about him earlier, 
writes, if you refuse to police public drug use or aggressive panhandling, the quality of life itself will decline. If you increase the incentives for bad behavior, you will inevitably achieve catastrophic results. This is not social science. It's common sense. And because we have abandoned common sense and it is no longer in the mainstream, we are becoming dull and inured to what is happening in our very community. As I say, not very many miles from here where I am broadcasting, about five miles from here. We have something akin to what looks like the aftermath of an intifada in Gaza City or perhaps some other immiserated war-torn community. Are we really saying someone could not come up with some solution to this involving social work, police, mental health, property, and business development to enforce something we used to call civilization? This country rightly grapples with the legacy of slavery that took hold in part of this country a century and a half or so ago. I saw no greater slavery in decades than I see when I go to the zone, as it's called, or tent city. When Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Ulysses S. Grant, their cohort set out to eliminate slavery, they did so on the basis of understanding the intrinsic worth of every human being. Going back to the Declaration of Independence proposition that all men are equal, equal in their distinctions from gods and beasts, from being lords and masters or slaves, from being God or chattel animals. Slavery in those days was intellectually achieved by denying the self and human dignity of human beings. In fact, it started with the corruption of language. Slave, not human. N-word, not human. Chattel, not human. Once you put someone in the category of animal, and and the word chattel is where you get the word cattle, once you put someone in the category of animal, you can naturally then ride them or let them live like animals or do to them what you do to animals. Maybe. Maybe, maybe diminishing the importance and mocking the import and intellectually toxifying the seriousness with which we used to put on the seriousness and ingenuity of that understanding is also why we have thousands of people living like this in burlesques of freedom, mockery of law, inhuman conditions, inhuman, also inhumane. Doing nothing, allowing it, tolerating it is what is truly inhumane, though. And just like broken windows theories, broken men and women will not fix themselves. They will get worse. And just like broken window theories, the territory and geography and enormity of the problem will, unaddressed, expand and exacerbate. It doesn't have to. As I say, this is solvable. But to solve it, we have to get to a sense of what caused it, a sense of control, which every army knows it needs in a war zone, so that then we can cure it. It still turns out here in the West, I think, the use and abuse of language and the use and abuse of people still have consequences and still matter. Broken souls and broken bodies should be, to us, at least as important as broken windows, don't you think? Ending where we began, with Aristotle and the politics. For man, when perfected, is the best of animals. But when separated from law and justice, he is the worst of all. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Rachel Mitchell coming up, our county attorney. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Serious public policy problems, as we've been discussing, require serious public servants. And uh, one of those serious public servants is Rachel Mitchell. She is our county attorney, and she is running for election 
She has my support. She has a tremendous amount of support in this community, and we are delighted to call her a friend and welcome her back to the show. Rachel Mitchell, welcome back. How's it going out there? It's going great. Thanks for having me on your show. Of course, always. Um, I was just kind of talking uh, with um, with the audience, and in the previous hour I was talking to someone you you know, Jeff Taylor, a little bit about crime, a little bit about homeless, but uh, the homeless problem. But uh, one of the things I wanted to take um, the measure uh, on these problems of with you is a few different policy areas that we haven't talked about before in your visits here. One of the things I've been looking at recently is a policy that's kind of come through Arizona over the last, oh, I don't know, half decade or so. I wondered if you could address it. Uh, this this no bail policy uh, that we deal that we have to deal with when we arrest certain kinds of criminals for certain kinds of crimes and the effect no bail policies have had on crime in Maricopa County or Arizona or the community at large. And I wonder if you might say a word or two about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There was a change about five years ago that um, really resulted in the judges uh, drastically reducing the the amount of bail or bond that they set. And most, the vast majority of the bonds are set as secured appearance, meaning they only have to post 10% as opposed to the entire amount. And what that's resulted in is a revolving door. Um, We actually have... uh, situations where people have received their initial appearance in the morning, been bonded out, uh, well, had no bond, so they got out of custody, went out and committed another felony, and were back on the calendar by that evening. So it's when you you consider how uh, down they are in numbers, law enforcement, they're not only having to arrest this person once, but multiple times. It must have a dramatically negative impact, not only on prosecutors, uh, of course, but also on police, too, knowing I mean, because it takes a lot. People don't just get arrested. It takes a lot of effort to, and, and, and a lot of different aspects of the community to, to, to arrest uh, someone if, if, if a real crime isn't taking place in, 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 uh, in live sight of a, of a policeman. So when they go in and make an arrest, it must be tremendously demoralizing for the cop to later see that person out on the street that night, possibly requiring a second or third arrest. No? Incredibly. I mean, no one wants to work at a job where you feel like you're not making any difference at all. Right. And when we let these people out and they see them back on the streets committing more crimes, that's the sense that they're given. And, I, you know, just recently we had um, video that was all over uh, the Internet of that police officer that got into that very brutal fight with somebody that was had just been released, and then he gets released again uh, back in New York City. Um, that basically devalues the the officer to such an extent that it's no wonder that we see them leaving NYPD in droves. And it must be some kind of an implicit message to the wrongdoer as well, the alleged criminal as well, knowing that they can get away with this and be back home uh, by the by the by 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 sunset. Yeah. Absolutely. And what we're seeing is they know that the more times that they're booked, it, the likelihood goes up that maybe one at one point they'll be held. And so what we see is an increase in violence from one arrest to the next. And so it's not even in their best interest because they're allowed to remain out committing additional crimes 
and racking up harsher sentences. Now, I, I think that's that, that's well put. We're talking to Rachel Mitchell, our county attorney running for election. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com is her website if you want to help her out encourage you to do so. This was a short segment. I'm going to uh, say uh, have you back on in, in just a few moments after the quick commercial break, if I can, because I want to talk to you about the other side of this, too, a little bit, which is we talk mm-hmm. we tend to talk about crime in somewhat of a vacuum in, in my profession. But, I, you know, there are real victims here and you, you've yeah. been a real champion of victims rights. And I wonder if on the other side of this break, you might talk a little bit about what it means to be and stand up as a champion for victims rights. Uh, can I do that with you on the other side of this break real quick? Absolutely. Rachel Mitchell is our guest. She is our county attorney here in Maricopa County, and uh, she is running for election. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com is the website, and she and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Our county attorney, Rachel Mitchell, is our guest. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com is her website. She is running for election. And one of the things we were just talking about before the break was Rachel's commitment to standing up for the victims. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about keeping our community safe, but also when things go wrong, keeping in mind that there is a victim. There is a forgotten victim in these cases. Rachel, talk to us about your commitment to victims' rights. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, we have a very uh, strong victims' rights uh, law in Arizona. It's in our Constitution, actually. And it is so important. You know, the the media oftentimes focuses on the crime itself and the criminal. But behind that is somebody who maybe has lost a loved one or their life if they're the actual, you know, homicide victim. Um, it's a child who's been molested. It's a woman who's been raped. It's a business who's been, you know, destroyed by vandalism and theft to where people cannot survive financially to keep that business going. So there are some devastating consequences. We're even seeing, as you know, a rash in catalytic converter theft. Yep. And the impact on a person who is a single person, maybe raising kids, who's trying to work a job, to replace that is it can be devastating one of the uh, one of the things that uh, that that we look at uh, we we who have gone to law school when we study this stuff it's it becomes a heavy lift to get someone into the frame of mind you're in because most law students are trained in always focusing on what you said Rachel which was the defendant and the rights of the defendant mm-hmm. and of course everyone has constitutional rights and i understand the civil libertarian argument to protect to protect the constitutional rights of any, of everyone so that the innocent are, if ever arrested, uh, protected as well. But that is kind of a failure of our legal education system, I think, at least, that it puts an mm-hmm. undue attention on the defendant 99 out of 100 times where the defendant is actually guilty of the crime they're being charged with anyway. Yeah, and I think it's used to, to uh, in this you know current state of you know anti-police, right anti-prosecution state of mind, it's used to reinforce those those thoughts. And, you know, I've been talking to a lot of community members, of course, during my campaign, and one of the things that I'm trying to remind them of is, yeah, I've, I've put people in prison. I've put child molesters and rapists in prison for 25 of my 30 years, but I'm also the attorney that is holding the hand of the five-year-old That's right. that walks that child up to the That's stand right. to talk about the worst thing that ever happened to That's her. right. That's and right. that part of my job 
speaking for the vulnerable and the, those who don't really have a voice is incredibly important and rewarding. Thank you for your attention on that, Rachel. And uh, well, in, uh, when the campaign season is over, I'd like to uh, roll up my sleeves and work with you on uh, furthering the purposes of our of our uh, victims' uh, victims' uh, rights, uh, constitutional mm-hmm. rights, because it is something that I think the state legislature and too many in our judiciary have kind of let lapse due to a lack of attention, which is not because of you, but because of a system. I think because of you, we will put more attention on it, which is one of the reasons I'm so supportive of your your office and your candidacy. You announced, uh, this is kind of interesting, you announced about a week or so a new task force on crimes against businesses. You want to say a word about that? Yeah, we're really excited about it. I had met with the Arizona Retailers Association and uh, learned some things. Obviously, my background is more in you know crimes against children and sex assault where um, they're really facing some monumental uh, obstacles to running businesses. And uh, we have uh, focused our efforts on that. We've uh, put together a team that will interact with the retailers who are organized themselves and communicate well with each other so that we can look at the individuals who are doing this get all of the cases involving these individuals together so that we can look at the whole picture and uh, really take a a bite out of this really growing and and increasingly violent effort on the part of people. Yeah, because it can ruin a community itself, the business crime element. Uh, of course, we saw that recently with Starbucks having to close. But, you know, I was put in mind a lot of Phoenicians go to San Diego for the summer and uh, they used mm-hmm. a lot more used to go to Mission Beach. If you want an idea of seeing what crime can do to a community and business, look at Mission Beach as opposed to what it was 30 years ago. Boarded up businesses, more and more vagrancy, more and more crime. That's what we're trying to prevent here. Right, Rachel? Cities from dissolving, basically. Absolutely. You know, if you shut down, let's say, a pharmacy right. in the area because they can't function, you've now crippled the community. What if there's somebody there that needs medication that can't drive? Right. Um, you know, and, and so you've diminished the community. You've hurt the community. It's not that you're, you know, being mean to people. You're, you're trying to protect them, protect their community, protect that they have resources yep. to live a life that is that is comfortable and get things that they need like baby formula and prescriptions. Things we kind of just used to take for granted and in too many communities across the country and frankly starting to happen here a little bit. uh, People wake up one day and say, how did this happen? Well, it happens through indolence and it happens through turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to those kinds of crimes. And uh, this Mm -hmm. is what we're trying to stop. We don't need to become Mission Beach. We don't need to become Los Angeles. We don't need to become uh, we don't need to become the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. And, Rachel, uh, if you want to, you know, take a minute and just address yourself to any of that or all of that, as I thank you and head to uh, our break here for also working with us on our homeless project, feel free. The last minute is yours here. Thank you. Um, absolutely. And, I mean, uh, we've talked about this in the past, it, the bro- broken windows theory of prosecution, mm-hmm. and that is if you ignore the lesser going to have more and more violent, more and more serious crimes. And that was proven successful when you looked at the the lower level offenses in New York. It cleaned up New York back in the 80s. And it's being proven in Los Angeles and San Francisco where they have ignored that principle. And now they've got huge, huge problems on their hands. 
I don't want that to happen here. It's not going to happen on your watch, and we're here and happy to help and work with you hand-in-hand and arm-in-arm with that, Rachel. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com. I know it's a super busy week for you, Rachel, and I just really appreciate it, but I wanted to get you on a little bit before the election next week. So thanks again for all your great work. Thank you so much. You betcha. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com. Support this woman who supports this community and you so, so strongly. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Boy, that song just kind of <laughs> came out randomly. Sometimes you some for those listening on the podcast, that song was Broken Glass by, uh, it's not the Eurythmics, is it? It's Annie Lennox, right? Annie Lennox. Anyway, thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us, folks. Uh, conversation with Jeff, conversa- conversation with Rachel. Used to be said, and I think it was attributed to Tip O'Neill, that all politics is local. And it needs a revision. It needs a revisionary thought, if it was ever true. Because what does happen locally becomes a model more globally, or at least beyond just the local community. It can be a model for good or model for ill. Spoke briefly uh, with Rachel about, you know, those who may have grown up here or in San Diego or anyone who visited beautiful city, San Diego, 20 and 30 years ago. And you look at a place like Mission, it's just different it's not what you used to rem- what it used to be it's boarded up it's dilapidated it's crummy it's lost our effort here is to not let that model or the los angeles model or the san francisco model those local models expand throughout other communities certainly not here what i'm proposing And these elections coming up will give us a good opportunity to try it. What I'm proposing is that we show different models, better models, and let those expand. New York City had it for a while. They had it for a while. And then, as I said at the beginning of this hour, all civility as all civilization is fragile. It's impermanent. It requires continued and constant work, nurturing and effort. Too many times we succeed at something and then let it go and give up. Can't do that in this country because there are too many forces of decomposition. My pitch to you, be a force of composition. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 